This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Facebook finally admits it sold political ads to Russians during the presidential campaign. Bob Dreyfus will comment. We'll also talk about hurricanes, toxics in Texas, in Trump's EPA. John Nichols will explain. First up, Dreamers and DACA. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, maybe you heard the news. Trump announced he was reversing Obama's executive order, protecting dreamers from deportation, and giving Congress six months to come up with a legislative solution. And then he said sort said something sort of different, maybe. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I'm confused because a day after rescinding President Obama's program protecting dreamers, Trump said he wanted to work with Democrats to legalize the program. Could you please explain? No. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, even even in the, the the land of 180s, which, which DC sometimes is, uh, this is uh, quite quite a reversal. Uh, uh, apparently, uh, Democratic uh, House Leader Nancy Pelosi, after they had this uh, uh, chat about uh, the debt ceiling and the budget and and, and various things urged Trump to reassure the dreamers that uh, they would they would be okay and he issued a tweet today which said for all of those parentheses DACA close parentheses that are concerned about your status during the six-month period you have nothing to worry about no action hmm. so uh, maybe maybe this is uh, Trump working with Nancy Pelosi maybe this is the art of the deal Maybe it is. We haven't really seen the art of the deal. And I think probably from Trump's perspective, uh, the various uh, deals he thought he could get uh, working just with Republicans uh, haven't, uh, haven't uh, been closed. Uh, he, he couldn't get uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, repealed and revised, and uh, he's been increasingly down on both Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. And the, the, the most uh, sort of theatrically bizarre thing about the, the whole situation is that he made his decision to go along with what uh, Pelosi and Democratic Senate leader uh, Chuck Schumer had proposed. He made that decision, uh, or at least he announced that decision, while in an open meeting with Pelosi and Schumer and McConnell and Ryan, so if that wasn't an F.U. to McConnell and Ryan, who were sitting there uh, watching the president uh, ignore their proposal and go with Pelosi and Schumer's, I don't know what an F.U. is. Now, explain to me, the, the other part of this is the the early December target for, uh, what is it, revising the debt ceiling, expanding, right. extending the debt ceiling, and the Republicans didn't want to do it on December 6th. What's that about? Well, the, the Repub you know, first of all, up until recently, uh, 
raising the debt ceiling so America could pay its bills, like monthly Social Security checks, uh, whatever uh, it's uh, it's paying to Lockheed Martin to build God knows what. Uh, that those went through without any any particular controversy because if the United States were to say it is not going to uh, pay its bills and it's going into default, uh, the effect on the world economy would be likely uh, cosmic, uh, uh, one way of describing it. So um, uh, you, uh, up until recently, this wasn't a big deal. And then you begin to get these uh, uh, somewhat whacked uh, right, white, right-wingers in the Republican caucus, uh, some in the Senate, more in the House, who said, well, no, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't raise a debt limit, uh, as though this were the budget, which they could make cuts from. It's not the budget. It's in expenses already incurred. Uh, but um, so when, when people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were viewing an upcoming vote on the debt ceiling, there would be all these stories about Republicans threatening global economy, business nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they wanted to push this until after the 2018 election when uh, it, it couldn't really harm Republicans' electoral process. Well, thinking politically uh, in, in, on, on a number of issues, Schumer and Pelosi said, well, no, let's, let's, uh, let, let, let's uh, put it uh, before us now as, as part of this whole uh, uh, hurricane uh, uh, recovery thing to Texas, and who knows what we're going to have to do beyond that for, uh, for Florida, when Irma hits Florida. Uh, let, let's package that with a debt ceiling vote now, and let's do it just for three months so the Republicans can vote again in December. The, the, the thought being that, you know, uh, Republican, they would either defang the Republican opposition uh, to raising the debt ceiling or make a number of them look like jerks, and maybe some of them would therefore lose their seats in the 2018 election. So, but the, 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 the 180 after the 180 here <laughs> is that Sh- apparently Schumer and Trump have also agreed uh, thereafter to make uh, the uh, hikes to the debt ceiling automatic ah. uh, so that so they don't have to actually be voted on in Congress, which they, they should have been all the time. Uh, um, so um, at one and the same time, what Schumer and Trump have come up with uh, is uh, the, the, the first part, getting the votes on the record now, makes the Republican leadership nervous because it exposes some of their members quite possibly uh, either as, uh, you know, anarchists willing to blow up the world uh, economic system or make them very unhappy for having to vote for it. So it upsets them, and then it'll upset all of those, you know, the the above-mentioned bizarre idiot right-wingers because they will now, in in their minds at least, have no control over the uh, uncontrolled rising debt of the United States uh, if 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 the debt ceiling uh, becomes uh, automatic, of course that has to pass Congress too, and that'll be an interesting fight again within Republican ranks, not in Democratic ranks. I'm sure Democrats will just say, "Good, it should have been that way all along." Yeah, uh, Republicans will be conflicted. So, getting back to the Dreamers and DACA, uh, this is all. This is a big political issue in places like California. Uh, there's, I, I read there are 180,000 people eligible for DACA just in Los Angeles County. Uh, and there are some Republican 
members of Congress from Orange County, just to the south of us, who will uh, face serious challenges from Democrats uh, in the November 2018 uh, elections. Uh, this sort of this kind of calls the question for them on what they're going to do about these wonderful young Latino, mostly Mexican kids who now everybody loves. Even the president says they're wonderful kids. We've got Dana Rohrbacher from Huntington Beach, Mimi Walters from Irvine, Ed Royce from Fullerton. They're all going to have to vote on what to do about the Dreamers and um, making DACA a legislative uh, act rather than an executive order uh, before uh, March. And if they don't, uh, if they don't, our friends the Democrats will certainly take this up and uh, perhaps um, Dana Rohrbacher, Mimi Walters, and Ed Royce uh, remember Prop 187 from 1994, which you and I have talked about here at, at one time. What do you think are the politics of, of uh, giving, making a DACA law? Uh, I, I think it will pass. Uh, I think I think the Dream Act will, in fact, be enacted. Although I could be wrong, uh, but uh, you know the, the the problem for the Republicans is this is you know increasingly uh, a, a kind of motherhood and apple pie issue for most voters. But there's a hard right in the Republican Party, including in California. Uh, the same people who drafted Prop 187 are, you know, 20 some years older and still just as crotchety and just as bigoted and still around. Many of them, anyway. Uh, and uh, uh, so that that's the tension there. I mean, uh, there's going to be a, a Republican gathering in Fresno, I gather, fairly uh, soon, to which the Republicans have invited Joe Arpaio, the uh, oh. law-breaking, now pardoned sheriff of, uh, of Maricopa County. Uh, to address, and some Republican congressmen uh, in the in the in the San Joaquin Valley, who have lots of uh, Latino constituents and who are among the targeted seven Republicans whose districts the Democrats are hoping to switch, have said they're staying away. Uh, my guess is that uh, to get down a case is that Ed Royce, who has a lot of minority, uh, uh, they're not the minority in California, <laughs> a, a, a lot of. Latino. Latinos and Asians, Latinos in, in, and Asians in, yeah. in his district will probably vote for the DREAM Act. Uh, the demographics of Dana Rohrbacher and Mimi Walters' districts are still uh, you know, fair, pretty, pretty white, mm -hmm. particularly Mimi Walters. I mean, we're talking like Newport Beach, Irvine. Um, so uh, it's not clear to me what, what they will do. Daryl Issa, whose district is partly in Orange County and partly in San Diego County, released a statement that I thought basically indicated he was going to vote for the DREAM Act. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the, the, all, of these, all of these folks face a, a bit of a conflict between the increasingly hysterical uh, right-wing uh, base of the Republican Party and the changing demographics of the state and their districts. There is a talk that the Republicans will want to make a compromise proposal to Democrats that they'll support the DREAM Act if Democrats will support uh, funding uh, at least part of the beginning of construction of the wall. Uh, there's also a longer list of, of uh, immigration uh, restrictions that Republicans would like voted for. Um, you think a deal like this is the, you think the Democrats will submit to a deal like this? Well, 
Not initially, but I mean, if it, actually, if it is required to get the Dream Act passed, that uh, funding some portion of the wall, the, the, the congressional Republicans really have already kind of dismissed funding the whole the whole thing, partly because they have they're going to have to spend so much money on uh, hurricane recovery in Texas, and now it looks like Florida as well. Uh, you know, I mean, if if they have to do it, I think that's a vote. I, I think the Democrats will will do that. But if I were the Democrats, I would I would ask for more. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the Dreamers have parents for whom Obama created a program. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, the it, it, there's there's a kind of non sequitur quality uh, to the demand that uh, legal immigration be cut. Um, so it it you know this is. Uh, this remains to be seen uh, what what price uh, Democrats may have to pay, but certainly they don't have to pay it at the at the get go, and they should be asking for more than the Dream Act. Uh, if uh, the Republicans say you got to do this, the Democrats will say, well, we want this and that, and see where all that goes. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson about Dreamers and DACA. Uh, the dreamers are really just the tip of the iceberg of of uh, undocumented people in the United States. I read the dreamers make up seven percent of the estimated eleven million undocumented immigrants who are currently in the country. It is tough to get to qualify as a dreamer. You have to have a uh, uh, you have to be pure. You have to be a high school grad or in school or a military uh, veteran or in the military. Uh, most Latinos, most immigrants uh, in Los Angeles County in California in the United States don't qualify to be uh, covered by the DREAM Act or the DACA program. Even if uh, DREAMers are spared by uh, the DREAM Act passing in March, there's, that's still going to leave uh, the vast population of undocumented workers vulnerable to deportation and uh, we don't want to lose sight of the big picture here. Right, and uh, if, if I can plug the American Prospect uh, uh, for a moment. Please. And, uh, uh, we've had a really good piece on our website now for the last uh, 48 hours from Los Angeles's own Manuel Pastor, uh, <laughs> professor at uh, University of Southern California at SC, uh, about you know who's covered, who's not, the, the sort of a profile of... Uh, of of the dreamers and Manuel makes a very good point that you know one of the uh, arguments in favor of keeping uh, the dreamers here one of the many arguments is that they were brought here as kids so they didn't really have you know free agency free choice they didn't uh, weren't really uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, this in some level ran afoul of immigration laws Manuel's point is that so many of the immigrants here uh, have uh, essentially fled uh central american nations that were uh you know being uh, destroyed by violence and uh uh upheavals in mexico that did, in a sense they didn't really have free agency either they yeah. uh, they were driven here uh as in historically many <laughs> immigrants often have been the irish came because there was a potato famine uh the jews came because of the uh, anti-semitic uh, policies and pogroms of uh of czarist russia and so on uh so if we take as an argument, and we do, that the dreamers should be held blameless because, uh, you know, the, this wasn't really 
their completely unforced free choice. They were little kids, most of them. Uh, so too, uh, this was not a completely uh, un, uh, you know unforced choice by the grown-ups who came, uh, and, and that that that's a real issue. But it's going to look. It's going to take uh, democratic control of both houses of Congress uh, with a significant majority in the Senate to clear the the the, the vote threshold and uh, the 60 vote threshold, and a Democratic president to really address all of the yeah. eight million undocumented uh, Americans who are are here without documentation. And in the three or four minutes we have left here, I just want to take a, a step back and look at the political success of the Dreamers, which really is one of the most unexpected and unlikely political stories in America. If 10 years ago you were saying, you, you would say, uh, how, uh, how is immigration politics going to play out? You would not say a, a group of undocumented quote, illegal young people will launch their own movement and win over the hearts of America, including the cold, cruel heart of, of Donald Trump. Uh, these were people who were called criminals by, uh, you know, one of the major political parties. And now they're, uh, now everybody loves the Dreamers. Well, they have waged a remarkable campaign. I remember I wrote a column in the Washington Post in 2005 about uh, one young woman who was like, I forget, a class valedictorian or something or other, who was threatened with, specifically she was threatened with deportation. Uh, and uh, that was enough to get her, uh, you know, uh, the government allowed her to stay, though it deported her parents. Uh, but it was putting this human face on it, uh, you know, starting in the early 2000s, well, before I wrote this column, and continuing, uh, uh, you know, and with very gutsy decisions on the part of uh, lots of young people yeah. uh, to say, here I am. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, uh, the movement for gay, lesbian, and transgender, and all that equality uh, becomes real when people say, well, this is, you know, I, I am gay, I am lesbian, uh, I'm a dreamer. Uh, look at me, look at what I do. Uh, do you really think... I merit the kind of treatment uh, that the law now dictates. Uh, and that is always a gutsy move, uh, and it is certainly uh, looks like it's paying off, let us hope, uh, for the Dreamers. I just heard a, driving into the station today, I, I heard a Chuck Todd interviewing a uh, Republican member of the House who was saying, well, the pro problem isn't the Dreamers. The problem is the ch the family chains that will follow in their wake. You know, if we if we let in a million Dreamers, they've each got 10 relatives who they're going to bring in, and then our country will be overrun, and white people won't be able to get jobs. And so even, I mean, it's an old argument that the immigrants are taking our jobs, but even the most right-wing members of the Freedom Caucus aren't really going directly after the Dreamers. They're saying, well, if you let them in, then what's going to happen? Yeah, well, that, that just is a reflection of how well they have made their case, uh, which, you know, and, and, and part of their moral stature is that they, were, they put themselves at risk by doing that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that... Uh, that that gives them, uh, you know, I think uh, the risk is uh, the risk is real, and uh, but it it I think ultimately ups the possibility of reward. Harold Meyerson, read him at the American Prospect. Harold, it's always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Weiner, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up. 
Trump's EPA is in charge of dealing with toxics in Texas after the hurricane. John Nichols thinks that might be a problem. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at trumpwatchpodcast and Twitter at trumpwatchpcast. Later in this hour, Facebook finally admitted it sold political ads to Russians. But first, toxics in Texas. 13 Superfund sites around Houston, those are the heavily contaminated former industrial zones. 13 of them were flooded or damaged by Hurricane Harvey. The full impact on surrounding areas is not yet clear. The news came among rising concern about the health risks posed by Hurricane Harvey's record floodwaters. This is a job for, among others, the Environmental Protection Agency established by an executive order of President Nixon in 1970 and then made permanent by Congress. Its responsibilities include protecting the public from hazardous waste. Who is the head of the EPA under Donald Trump? Who is in charge of protecting the millions of people in East Texas from the toxic soup of chemicals, oil, and bacteria left behind by the flooding. For answers, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. It was published last week by Nation Books. John Nichols, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you. Well, tell us about Trump's EPA. Well, it's a bad scene, man. Look, the Environmental Protection Agency has always been uh, a place where the right has sought to play politics. Um, and, you know, it's not like under Reagan you had perfect leadership there or, or uh, under the Bushes, uh, although somewhat better. With Scott Pruitt, though, you have something different altogether. This is not about Republican or Democrat. This is not about conservative or liberal. Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, former attorney general of Oklahoma, is someone who really throughout his political career has been essentially a, uh, an ally, spokesman for, combatant on behalf of polluters, big corporation, climate change denialists. I mean, this guy is the sort of person who you might see as the chief critic of the EPA, and he sued it many, many times as attorney general. He's been visceral in his attacks on the agency before he came into it. Uh, but, but even the most right-wing president, I think, in the past would never put someone like this in charge because he clearly is uh, interested in dialing the agency down, making it less than it should be. Now, does that mean that the EPA, which has thousands of great employees, really dedicated people, people giving their lives to, to this uh, agency, and in some places, I think I could be fair to say see it as a cause as much as just work. Mm-hmm. Does that mean the EPA is not going to be there in Texas trying to do good things? No, it does not. There will be people on the ground uh, working really hard to address these toxic issues, these chemical issues, the host of it. But what it means at the, at the broader and higher level, and as we have more and more storms like this, is that under Pruitt, the EPA is 
being cut in size, in staffing, in focus, in energy. Uh, he himself is doing all sorts of internal things to di- diminish and undermine where it goes. And so I, I don't think we're going to have the level of commitment and, and energy that we've had in the past. And I would just counsel on one thing, too. You're correct to focus on these immediate chemical and toxic issues. These are big deal issues that are going to have to be dealt with fast, and, and it's going to cost a lot of money. And so that commitment has to be there. But you should also understand that climate scientists will tell us that uh, climate change isn't causing hurricanes, but what it is doing is making hurricanes much worse. Bigger storm surges, more flooding, flooding that then takes water into industrial zones, into refinery zones, places that water historically didn't get. And as a climate change denialist, as a climate, climate change skeptic, uh, Scott Pruitt is one of those people who suggests that we don't, we don't have to be you know, factoring this into the mix. And that's, in my opinion, madness, because what we learn from Hurricane Harvey, what we seem to be learning from Hurricane Irma, is that uh, these storms are, are going places. They're bigger. They're more violent than what we've had in the past. We need to adjust. We need to adjust our rules, and we may need to make adjustments that multinational corporations and energy companies may not like. And every evidence with Scott Pruitt is that kind of adjustment is not one he is inclined toward. So he's a dangerous person to have in this position at this time. Well, in addition to these uh, 13 heavily contaminated Superfund sites, there was also the most dramatic event of EPA concern was that explosion on Thursday morning at a Houston-based chemical plant. Just to give an example of Scott Pruitt's leadership of the EPA, he went on TV and said, quote, there are no concentrations of concern for toxic chemicals, close quote, emanating from that plant. This is the one in Crosby, Texas, owned by the French company Arkema. Pruitt said he agreed with the company, you'll be surprised to hear this, that the chemical fires should just be allowed to burn themselves out. In the meantime, residents within 1.5 miles of the area had been evacuated, and of the original first uh, responders, 15 had to be hospitalized after inhaling chemical smoke from the nearly two tons of organic organic peroxides burning inside storage trailers. This is the area that Scott Pruitt said had was of no concern. There was no concern for toxic chemicals. I mean, look, it's a nightmare scenario. If you were if you were making a film about the corruption of government, you know, a, a fictional dramatic film about the corruption of government, you would have, you know, a, a corporate stooge take over an agency at a time when you had, you know, like these huge public health and public safety crises playing out and say incredibly absurd and wrongheaded things. You know, one other thing that Scott Pruitt did along this way was early on, you know, right after Harvey hit, he, he was doing interviews where he was suggesting that the media was alarmist or the media was being, quote unquote, opportunistic when it interviewed scientists about this stuff. And then the agency itself actually, a spokesperson for the agency, actually criticized scientists for speaking up and saying, you know, these storm surges are getting bigger. We need to be prepared for this stuff. For Scott Pruitt, climate denial or climate change denial is, is mission critical. It's always the thing that goes to the front. But at a, at a deeper, more fundamental sense, it is defending corporations, saying you agree with these multinational corporations, saying you, you, know, you think it's going to be fine. 
That's not the job of the EPA. The job of the EPA is to say, speak the painful truth that sometimes, in fact, often, corporations don't do what they're supposed to do. And that's why we need to regulate them. And it's why we need to challenge them, especially in emergency situations, to, to get in there, pour resources in, do what has to be done. I am incredibly unsettled by the fact that he is the head of this agency at this time. I still counsel, but there are great employees there, people who really are doing the job. But the future terrifies me because I just don't see Scott Pruitt taking the EPA in the right direction. Well, another front of uh, conflict right now has to do with the public's right to know what the dangerous chemicals are that are being released into the water and the air as a result of the explosions and flooding of the Superfund sites. Here there's been a battle with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, which said that a detailed list of the chemicals stored inside the facility that exploded the Arkema factory outside of Houston is not public information. This is Arkema's position. It's supported by Scott Pruitt. Uh, their line is the public's right to know is in conflict with the public's right to be secure. They're talking here about terrorist attack. Their argument has been that, well, if the terrorists know the dangerous chemicals that are located on any particular Superfund site, that will make them more vulnerable to attack. I wonder what you make of this argument that the public's right to be secure from terrorist attacks should should supersede the public's right to know what's been released into the environment around Houston. Well, the data tells us that we're much more likely, as Americans, to be threatened by chemicals and toxics than we are by by somebody from who wants to do something horrible. I, I Look, I understand the, the desire to strike a smart balance. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I would imagine that somebody wanting to do terrible damage, if you just had a place that, that like, you Google chemical companies and find out where their sites are, whatever chemicals there, you probably got a sense that it's something bad. And so I find it on the surface to be a deeply troubling, you know, kind of excuse making here, especially in an yeah. emergency situation. But I also want to, I'm actually going to connect this out from this Texas agency, which I know is Texas based, uh, out to Pruitt. You know, Pruitt has a long history of resisting Freedom of Information Act requests and resisting the, the desire of citizens to know what is being done in their name but without their informed consent. And I, I actually read about this a great deal in the book because right before he was confirmed, a judge ordered the documents he had resisted releasing be put out. Mitch McConnell rush, rushed the confirmation through before the actual release of the documents. Mm. And you know what we learn is that by and large, the information that government agencies have should, become, should be information that we have, right? They, they operate in our name. And if it threatens our health and safety and our children, we ought to know if we're living next to horrible, dangerous chemicals. Now, that does not mean that you don't take smart security steps. But frankly, if you've got a multinational corporation with a lot of dangerous chemicals piled up in a place close to where people live, maybe your regulation ought to put that someplace far from where the people live. And then, of course, you secure the site. And of course, you make sure that it's not vulnerable to attack and things of that nature. But 
where does the duty begin and where does it end? I would argue the duty of an environmental uh, agency at the state or federal level is to protect human beings from environmental dangers. I want to sort of pull the lens back here to look at the bigger picture of the Trump administration and the way you treat it in your book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. We focus so much on Donald Trump, the evil, narcissistic, crazed, dangerous person who dominates the news and dominates our talk and our thinking. This is one example of where Donald Trump really isn't the biggest uh, problem that we face, and that's really what your book is about. That's exactly what it's about. And it is, it argues, or I have argued as we've been talking about all this, that you know, we know a lot about quite a few of these people. We know um, that, you know, we knew Jeff Sessions wasn't a good player going in. I think a lot of people knew Scott Pruitt wasn't a player going in. But one of the things that we've, we've come to recognize is that um, Donald Trump has a tendency to empower the loudest yeller in the room, i.e., because he knows so little about governing, because he's so disengaged from it, that if somebody comes in and they make a lot of noise and, and um, seem to know a lot just by their bombast, that's a really good way to end up in charge of an agency. Betsy DeVos yelling about education. You know, Tom Price over at HHS, you know, yelling about health care. From very right wing, very extreme, very certain place, rather than a scientific place, rather than an analytical place, it's just absolute certainty. Well, that's what you get with Pruitt at the EPA as well. The problem is Trump has empowered people that he doesn't have to tell them what to do. They're going to do it because they want to do it. Many, yeah. In many cases, they've been building up to this for their whole career. And, and so people say, well, yeah, Trump's the worst thing in the world. And, you know, he tweets this and he says this. Yes, we should always keep an eye on him. I happen to think the guy should be impeached. However, don't miss the fact that he has empowered people who would actually do worse than he would do. So there's dozens of people in this book. I, I have the feeling that the public, uh, even the educated public, doesn't know a whole lot about what cabinet officials do and, in fact, who is running Trump's government. What's your feeling about this? Well, you know, I, I would love to see an interviewer. And Donald Trump's not doing many interviews of late, but I would love to see an interviewer just say, can you name your cabinet? <laughs> uh, because, I, you know, I, I write in the book about an incident where Betsy DeVos was, was there, and, and it was clear he was struggling to rem remember which agency she oh. was with. And, and, and Betsy DeVos is not somebody who's an unclear <laughs> advocate. She's the one we remember. Yeah, we do. And, um, but, but to get beyond that, and that's sort of, you know, somewhat petty picking on Trump, uh, because I'm not sure that all – the many other presidents, I'm not sure they knew – who all they had empowered. But George Washington had four cabinet members. And we actually know their name. We make plays on Broadway about them. <laughs> and then he had, you know, his vice president himself. But it was a tiny group of people there. And everybody knew who they were and what they were in charge of. What's happened over time is that we, you know, we've gotten up to around, you know, 15, you know, depending on how Trump defines his own cabinet, it can go into the 20s if he br brings people in from different places, the generals and all these other folks. But, you know, we have a, you know, a huge number of folks who are given power over massive agencies. And in writing this book, one of the things that, that struck me is that we have not for a very long time paused and thought about the organization of our federal government. Other countries around the world do this all the time. And, in fact, the United States did it in the 1950s uh, under Eisenhower. There was a real you know, kind of assessment of it. And I just have to say, I think that one of the functions of Trump's presidency is to expose vulnerabilities in the American experiment. Uh, one of those vulnerabilities is the Electoral College, which allows losers to become president. Yes. But 
another of the vulnerabilities is that when a president comes in, uh, he has the ability to put people in charge of agencies, departments that are bigger, have bigger budgets, bigger staffs than states and countries. And, um, and yet they're often very little analyzed. I and mean, how many stories do you see about Rick Perry over at Energy? Yeah. But they handle nuclear waste. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. A guy handle, running an agency that he wanted to get rid of but couldn't remember. Mm. Um, and how, how often do we look at what's happening at the Department of Transportation? That's where they're talking about running, you know, a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure money, not all of it, but a substantial portion through the DOT. And Lane Chow has a, a, a record of, of wrecking agencies. When she was at the Department of Labor, she did a horrible job. And I just don't think that our media and, frankly, our Congress is up to speed on analyzing where this power is and how it expresses itself. And we really need to pause and think about that. If I, if I just one final concept simply that we should spend a lot more time talking to presidential candidates about who they want to put into positions. Excellent. Excellent idea. John Nichols, the book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America, published last week by Nation Books. John, thanks for the book. Thank thanks you. for coming in today. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the latest on Russia and our election with Bob Dreyfus. It's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. Same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly with more on DACA. But first, Facebook finally admitted yesterday that they sold political ads to Russians in last year's campaign. They had denied doing that for months. For comment, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He covers Russiagate for The Nation, and he's also a contributor to Rolling Stone and other publications. Uh, Bob Dreyfus, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much. Well, what do we know now about Facebook and the Russians, and why is it significant? Well, it's really, uh, you know, almost too early to say how important this story is, but um, there's long been suspicion uh, that the Russians not only, uh, you know, were involved in stealing emails and releasing them through WikiLeaks and information like that, but that they also had a data operation, um, one that uh, intervened using social media, using uh, bots, uh, you know, kind of automatons on things like Twitter and other social media, um, and, and various paid trolls like people who were hired by the Russians to to go onto various websites and promote um, pro-Russian, uh, anti-Clinton, pro-Trump um, uh, points of view. So now we know at least one small part of that based on what came out yesterday in the Washington Post, namely that at least $100,000 worth of ads were purchased by the Russians, by uh, an, uh, a sort of 
Russian government-affiliated uh, internet research group, um, and that uh, those ads uh, were used during the 2016 election to promote pro-Russian points of view on Facebook. Um, I don't know how important $100,000 is. That's a, a small ad buy, yeah. um, as you can imagine when campaigns are spending literally tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising and also of course many private groups and PACs and so forth are doing the same um, but it, it points to something that could be important first of all it could be um, the tip of an iceberg it could be that this is a much larger amount yes um, second it raises questions about uh, whether this information was targeted, and if so, how. In other words, when you buy an ad on Facebook, um, you can target it to a specific audience, a specific geographic area. Um, and let and me let me interrupt at this point uh, to quote from the New York Times. This of this is your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul. The New York Times story on this. Uh, as an example of how advertisers can pay to have particular Facebook posts displayed in the news feeds of very carefully targeted people, the example the New York Times gave was Facebook can target for you mothers who live in Minneapolis and like churches and the Minnesota Twins. Uh, I've contacted my friends in Minnesota to see if they know these mothers, but uh, you're suggesting that the Russians themselves probably would not know that this level of detail of who to target as people who could be influenced to not vote for Hillary, for example. Well, we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, now, you should keep in mind that, you know, campaigns and politicians have been doing voter targeting for decades. Yes. I, I did a story on that um, out of Wisconsin back in the late 90s. Um, in Paul Ryan's first race for Congress and a few other races out in Wisconsin. And I visited a company then who was doing immense, uh, extremely detailed targeting, you know, melding together information that they got from phone calls, from magazine subscriptions, so that they could find, you know, uh, single mothers who subscribe to the NRA's magazine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and target um, you know, particular uh, income range, I mean, all kinds of things, you know. So that's been going on for a long time. Um, now it's it's taken to a new level with the emergence of social media over the last, you know, decade. And, and, and um, we don't know yet whether this information was targeted that specifically. Um, we don't even know, I don't believe, whether it was targeted too much in terms of geographic areas. Um, now, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to know what a swing state is, and so the <laughs> Russians could figure out, right. you know, what, a, what, the, what were the, you know, eight or ten or twelve swing states in the election last year. But knowing how to refine that down to particular classes of voters and districts, that's something that the investigators are going to be looking at, and no doubt something that uh, Facebook itself will be looking at. Um, uh, there's already 
you know, questions have been swirling around for quite a while now about the data firm Cambridge Analytica, which um, is a uh, sophisticated data mining company that does voter profiles. They claim to have several hundred million of them in their database. Uh, Cambridge was initially in the Ted Cruz camp uh, a year and a half ago and was then switched to become a, a Trump ally when the Mercer family, which which owns it, uh, switched allegiances from, from Cruz to Trump about a year ago. And it's, Cambridge is already being looked at by the House and Senate intelligence, intelligence committees, no doubt by the special counsel as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's not out of the question that a company like Cambridge could have shared its data. Um, and I don't even know whether it would be illegal or not, but it's something to look at. Uh, could have shared its data with somebody in uh, Russia or elsewhere who wanted to you know, make use of that data for, for purposes of, of their own. My understanding of the law on this <clears throat> is, is that it is illegal for foreign entities or people to uh, pay money to contribute to to support political candidates uh, in our elections in in any way they can't buy independent ads they can't fund voter outreach and they certainly can't support specific candidates so uh, there may well be a crime here I'm not sure who the criminal is or how they prosecute that but is that your understanding of the law well I guess it depends on exactly the message was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't believe it's a crime to support uh, advertising of a particular message, um, you know, get out of Ukraine or something. I don't know. Um, but whether uh, it's, you know, whether how that relates to a election and a campaign, that's all stuff that now has to be, has to be looked at. Um, I mean, this is one small piece of a big mosaic that the investigators are putting together. Uh, looking at, first of all, you know, what Russia did vis-a-vis -vis the election last year, and second, whether the Trump campaign was party to it. Those yes. are really two separate issues. Um, I mean, we now know, among other things, that the Russians had a significant effort to try to hack into, uh, explore covertly uh, election systems in a couple of dozen states um, where they tried to get at the underlying information like voter rolls and and things like that, which, um, you know, theoretically could have, uh, I don't know, deleted people from the voter rolls. I mean, the Republicans are pretty good at doing that themselves. <laughs> yes. um, but but um, so, I mean, we don't know the extent of all this. That's why we need uh, investigators to put this all together, and that's why we need a pretty significant effort. I hate to use a word like robust, but we need some significant effort to create defenses against this kind of thing uh, in the future, especially going into important elections next year. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Bob Dreyfus. Uh, he covers Russiagate for The Nation. And Bob, you have a new column going up tomorrow, I believe, at thenation.com, which uh, reports on a mysterious man named Felix Sater 
S-A-T-E-R. Who is Felix Sater, and why is Trump so afraid of him? Well, he's, he's one of the most colorful characters in this whole Trump-Russia story. Um, he came into the news last week when uh, emails were leaked. Uh, apparently, at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, right when Trump was gearing up to go into the primaries in his presidential effort, um, Sater was then in Moscow. Um, and, and by the way, as we can get into it later, but I mean, he was a, a former business partner of Trump's. Um, so he was in Moscow exploring the possibility of building a big new Trump Tower hotel complex in the heart of Moscow. And uh, he wrote some hilariously worded emails back to Michael Cohen, who is Trump's lawyer um, and, and another uh, business partner, um, emails that make you laugh because they were so strangely worded, just like the ones that came out of that Trump Tower meeting with between uh, Manafort and Don Jr. and and the Russians uh, uh, in in June of of last year. He he wrote things like, um, "Our boy can become president of the USA, and we can engineer it. I will get." all of Putin's team to buy in on this. Um, he talked about arranging for Ivanka Trump to sit in Putin's chair in his office in the Kremlin. That one, that uh, one I have to say, is my favorite. There's no, no evidence that Ivanka actually wanted to sit in Putin's private chair in his uh, office in, in the Kremlin. I sort of felt a little sorry for Ivanka. On nor, this. nor do we know that she actually did that, by the way. But... Uh, uh, um, but yeah, go but ahead. He's saying, he said in this email, he said, I will get Putin on this program and we will get Donald elected. Yeah. Now, now, this guy, I mean, we have to take what he says with a grain of salt, but he did write this to Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. Uh, Michael Cohen did communicate about the building of Trump Tower to um, one of Putin's top uh, aides. Um, and and he admits that he did so. Um, the the project never got off the ground; it it fell apart. But this was all happening at a time when Trump was insisting again and again, and as he did even recently, that he has no dealings with Moscow, no business. I don't have any you know connection to the Russians, and yet here are two of his top people doing exactly that in the middle of his campaign. So yes, and let, let me underline here that, that this guy, Sater, uh, who was working on a Trump Tower uh, in the heart of Moscow, had uh, collaborated with Trump on a series of hotel and resort projects that had been completed. And he had had an office in Trump Tower, very, very near Trump's, I learned from your column. So this is not some guy who's pitching out of the blue to Trump. This is, how would you describe his relationship with Trump? Well, he he it's a it's a bit murky he carried around a business card calling himself advisor to donald trump he, as you say his his company uh, bayrock uh had offices on the 24th floor of uh trump tower his previous office had a its location at a wall street 40 wall street which is another trump owned building but the weird thing about it is that his relationship to trump in terms of real estate came after he had uh, calling it a checkered past with, with 
<laughs> understated. I mean, he was a guy who uh, went into the securities business in the early 90s. He got into a bar fight over a woman with a, another broker. He broke off a margarita glass and s- repeatedly stabbed this guy in the face with a broken margarita glass stem. Oh, dear. Stem. Um, he was convicted of this assault. He actually served jail time for it. He was banned uh, by the Security Dealers Association from ever being a broker again. They don't. They and don't yet, like. They don't like it when one broker stabs another with the stem of a cocktail glass repeatedly. I, I guess <laughs> to be a, a, a stockbroker, you have to keep your violence restricted to the financial world. But, <laughs> Thank you. But, but he did get involved with another securities firm. I assume that he wasn't allowed to be a dealer himself, but but he found partners. Um, but that firm, in turn, turned out to be a criminal firm, one that was involved in money laundering and a, and a, a what's called pump-and-dump scheme, where they inflate the value of a stock, sell it, and then, you know, profit while the stock then like, collapses. Um he was in turn convicted of that too, oh. um, and this was so. He, I mean, he had a, a thoroughgoing criminal past before he hooked up with Trump, and it, it isn't clear. Trump hasn't commented, I don't believe, for in on the record on this that he knew about this criminal past before. But it all came out ten years ago in the New York Times. Um, in 2007, the New York Times wrote an investigative story about this guy, not because of Trump running for president, obviously, but because he was such a weird and colorful character. And he, in order to try to save himself, became a informant for the FBI. Apparently, he cooperated with the CIA. He spun tall tales about uh, knowing how to connect with Osama bin Laden and uh, track down Stinger missiles that Al-Qaeda might have had gotten its hands on and all this kind of... Seems, seems pretty unlikely to me. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, he was, he was, to call him a colorful character, kind of, as I say, understates the, the point. But in fact, um, he, he did eventually connect up with Trump. As you say, he, he helped Trump... Um, in a series of projects, the most important of which was the the construction and financing of uh, uh, the Trump Soho project uh, down at the, the southern end of Manhattan. Um, and this was all when he was with this company called the Bayrock Group. So he's not somebody who, you know, was um, unknown to Trump. Um, he gave an interview to New York Magazine and they asked him, how did you get to know Donald? And he said, I just walked into his office one day and I said, I'm going to be the biggest big shot developer in New York. And, you know, you want to get to know me. And and, huh. and they did. Um, and as you say, they worked on several product projects together. Later, when, when uh, they both ran into trouble and the Soho project ran into financial difficulties and other things, um, Trump started saying, like, oh, no, no, I never heard of this guy. I wouldn't recognize him if I bumped into him. If I met him on the street, I probably wouldn't recognize him. Um, but it, it seems pretty clear that they did know each other, that they did have a working relationship. 
and uh, all of a sudden, two years ago, he's in Moscow again, working with Trump's lawyer on this hotel project. And let's uh, let's emphasize here that a Trump Tower in the heart of Moscow has been a project of Trump's for at least a a decade, and uh, we we think that Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump have traveled to Moscow with this guy, Sater, long long ago in an effort to launch this project. The fact that it hasn't been launched yet doesn't doesn't mean it isn't an important thing to Donald Trump. Oh, no, it is important. He, he, they went in the mid-2000s with Sater, uh, Trump's two children, uh, Ivanka and Donald Jr. Um, of course, there's the famous event back in 2013 when... Uh, Trump went to Moscow with his Miss Universe pageant, yes. which took place in Moscow back then. And he had a dinner with a couple of shady financiers and once again talked with them about putting up a hotel in downtown Moscow. Um, well, I'm afraid we are out of time. I just want our listeners to know they can read Bob Dreyfus's report at thenation.com. I believe tomorrow morning it goes up. Is that right? Uh, probably midday tomorrow. Midday be tomorrow. Your time. Yep. And it's called Who is Felix Sater and Why is Donald Trump So Afraid of Him? It's fascinating reading. Uh, Bob Dreyfus, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today. I want to thank my other guests on Trump Watch. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect talked about the Dreamers in DACA. John Nichols of The Nation explained the problems with putting Trump's EPA in charge of toxics in Texas after the hurricane. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Follow us on Instagram at Trump Watch Podcast and at Twitter at Trump Watch PCAST. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.